and welcome to the Gen X Playback Show, your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we are starting part two of our episode on our favorite Canadian songs in the U.S. market. And Sean, you want to introduce this one? Well, this is one of the very first bands that I remember seeing on MTV. And this would be the, the Canadian, Canadian like, supergroup at that time was Saga. This is so. This came out like 1981, early, early days of MTV, heavy rotation. Yeah, this was a, this was a really, really popular song. And, and I know you went into like where a lot of the bands are from. I, I didn't go into as much detail with that with my artists, and you, you covered a lot of the artists I'm going to cover, anyways. But this this band was another Ontario band. Yeah, and Saga, I completely forgot about this song, so I'm glad you played it. Really? Because I was scared you're going to take it. Because <laughs> to me, it's like a perfect intro to an episode. Once again, as we say all the time, an MTV band that the the song takes me back to the video, right? And the the lead singer was this very charismatic guy, and he he was this. Remember, he kind of had like the Japanese symbol shirt on. It was very much yeah. of the times, and yeah. I think I had a similar type of shirt uh, back then. It just very almost had new wave imagery with it. Well, yeah, and it, it definitely. The, you said 1981, 1982, right? Uh, you know that with the synthesizers it definitely fits into that time frame so where you know scott went through by the decades and and he went year by year he went in chronological order started 1970 and worked his way through uh where'd you end like 1997 or so with your yeah. final artist with the bare naked ladies right but i actually uh, uh showed some discipline and <laughs> i decided to take the difficult task of, of ranking my artist and so what I've done is I have a top 12, and then I have some honorable mentions. Okay. Now, and, we ha- and we haven't done that in a while. We haven't ranked. We, we haven't done that. And I'm kind of glad because I think there would have been a lot of similarities with our list. So this is good. This gives us a little, little bit of a contrast. And what, what I'm very happy about is while you did pick a lot of the artists that I was going with, for every artist that I thought you might pick, I have two songs. Mm-hmm. And it's... I'm, I'm pleased that there was only a few that you took my number one away. Okay. So I'm going to get started with number 12 and a band that, you know, I don't know that I was that into, but I felt they needed to be on the list because they were a very, very popular band. I, I don't know how much, Scott, you really remember this band. We're going to go ahead and, and just kind of play the beginning because it kind of builds as we get started here. And this is the band Triumph, and the song is Magic Power. I I thought about this song. I did because I remember Triumph being very popular, extremely popular. They much like the band Rush, who you talked about, a power trio. Yeah. And Triumph was another Canadian power trio. This song was played in heavy rotation on American rock radio. Yes, and. I think my my biggest imagery of the band Triumph is their concert t-shirt. Triumph, I can't tell you how many times I used to see people walking around sure. with Triumph t-shirts. Like they were, they seemed to be like the, kind of one of the, one of the stadium or arena bands of their time. Well, speaking of that, have you ever gone back and watched a lot of the footage of the Us Festival? They were one of the headline acts. 
in, the, in 83. So this is Allied off of the album Allied Forces, which came out in 81, which is, I think, their biggest album. But they were such a big, major international act that the, the US Festival put them on in a major time slot. Well, I think that's something that we're going to have to talk about over at time. At the US Festival, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that's one of those things that's become forgotten. Correct. When And I remember when they would talk to whether it was rock radio or rock reporters, when they said that you were performing at the US Festival, that was a big deal. It was. Yeah. It was. And Triumph, it, I, I just watched part of it uh, last night. They played. They had an hour set. Yeah. So it wasn't just like at Live Aid where they went out there for two or three songs. Right. This was a major portion of the concert. And you are correct. It seems like they were more prevalent than, than what I was probably into. I never owned anything by Triumph. Right. I knew their handful of hits that they would, or hits is like rock radio hits. But you're right. You would see these, these Triumph t-shirts on kids all the time. And, and we're talking like years later. We're talking like late 80s. You would still see people with the jean jacket and the Triumph concert t-shirt. Do you, do you remember what the what the bass player looked like in Triumph? The, he had like the really long hair and the mustache. Yes. Yeah. It, it was kind of like uh, it didn't. Um, he kind of looked like Otto from from uh, the Simpsons, but with a mustache. But didn't uh, shoot. What was his name from SNL and Spinal Tap? Didn't he model his? He crafted his look after he that. Kind of looks a little like him. Okay. And so for me, the guys that ten. 15 years later, we're walking around with the Triumph shirts. They almost all look like the bass player in Triumph. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my impression, at least. If if you like Triumph, I'm not putting it down. Obviously, they're on my list. I, I, I did like a lot of their songs and, you know, really respect the musicianship. I think yeah. that's what they were kind of known for. But yeah. number 12 on my list was Triumph. I'm going to go in a completely different direction for number 11. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised that this artist was not on your list. But as we've discussed in some of our other episodes, especially our country crossover episode, there was a time in the mid-90s where I was really into country music. And that is the artist Terry Clark. I, I, I don't know. Are you familiar with Terry Clark? I am familiar. Yeah, and I and I saw her name come up a lot. So she was a big deal, and I I really liked her. I mean, she had some other hits like uh, Better Things to Do, uh, uh, Girls Lie Too, Easy on the Eyes. These are all songs that were extremely popular. It's kind of in that, the mid nineties. And she was somebody that came out right around the same time as Shania Twain. Yes, and yet, maybe a little bit before, just but, a little but, bit. But right, yeah, right yeah. about that time. And kind of wonder now granted you know Schneider Twain like you said was kind of like the five tool baseball player sure in many ways Terry Clark I'm surprised that she didn't have more of a crossover impact than what than what she did now she was huge in the country music world right so she's had a great career she's had a long sustained 
30-year career. But you're right, that very little crossover onto the pop charts. Right. Now this song, you remember who sang it before? She did remember in the 70s? Linda Ronstadt did a version of this song. Yes. And it's a Warren Zevon song from before. I remember this song being on the radio in 1977 with Linda Ronstadt. Okay. And I, it's, it's amazing how you'll get these songs that kind of like, if you wait 20 years and then release it again, kids have no idea that it was out before. And you think it's an original. Yeah, but you know, that is, that's the genius of an artist is that they are able to take a cover song yet still make it sound completely their own. And I think that's what Terry did with that particular version. Well, she definitely made a country. Yeah. And where you talk about the contrast with her and Shania Twain, Shania Twain moves more towards the, you know, the poppy sound mm -hmm. of things. Where Terry Clark stayed pretty true to traditional country music. And as, as a result, I think she's was very much embraced. There was this movement that was going on in the mid-90s to a return to traditional sounding country music that the Alan Jacksons of the world mm -hmm. were kind of leading that. And she was part of that movement. So that was number 11, Terry Clark, and that was the song Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. Okay. We're going to move on to number 10. Number 10 is a, is a band, Scott, that you mentioned on your list. I would have played the song that you played, which is the one that most people know. But since you played it, I'm not going to do it. You, you had mentioned that this band rose to prominence in the U.S. on the show Miami Vice. Yeah. And that, of course, would be Honeymoon Suite. And you played the big hit New Girl Now, mm. which was on Miami Vice. And then you said, well, they did have another hit that came later on. And here it is now. As the song Feel It Again mm -hmm. came out in 1986. You, you listen to that, Scott, and, and you had to ask the question once again, why weren't they bigger? Yeah, I, to me, that that sound could have easily played itself out through the rest of the decade. Right. I, I had at least another album in it, I thought. 
they they seem to have the package much like Loverboy these were good musicians they were good looking guys yeah. they had they had the songs they they were poppy enough and this was a hit I mean it, it did chart but it just didn't blow up like you thought they might yeah yeah it, the the Australian side um, that, that I think of is you know the the, the songs electric blue sure it, you know what yeah. I'm saying it's like they were really really popular for a minute and then they just kind of vanished and I know that uh, you know again this this song this album I think won the Juno award for record of the year it's like I guess everybody's just kind of waiting for them to, to match that that type of energy and that type of excellence and who was it uh, I've heard so many critics say that it's not it's not the first album that makes you a star. It's the second album because right. when you go and record that first album, in many cases, you're you have a hundred songs in the can, or you know under were, your belt. They, these are road tested songs on that first album. Yeah, and then the second one is tough because it's like now you got to write new material, like come up with new material right away. So with Lover, uh, I'm sorry, with with Honeyman Suite, did you know how, where they're from and how they got their name? But yeah, they're from Niagara Falls, right? And because of course, of, it's the honeymoon capital yes. of the world. That's yeah. it's honeymoon suite, and that's that's the connection. So that was that was honeymoon suite with feel it again, a song that, or a, a band that I liked enough that they're number ten on my list for Canadian artists. So moving on to number nine, going to kind of you know contrast another band that Scott mentioned, and the the band I'm going to talk about is April Wine. Mm-hmm. April Wine, as we said, was wasn't as big as Loverboy. They kind of hit it about the same time. Scott played their biggest hit, Just Between You and Me. I think that's, if you if you mention April Wine to people, Gen Xer, especially those who might have been in high school in the early 80s, they're going to remember that song. But April Wine didn't necessarily go on and, and become huge, but they did have some other hits. So here's another song that, while I don't know if it was a huge hit, there was a video... And so it was a song that I really did like. Remember the video? I they're truck, they're, they're being truck drivers, yes. right? They go down the road with the yes. truck, and as I was saying, talking about the girls, they kind of do these like slow mos, and the girls run up to the truck, and then they're in the back of the truck playing their instruments. That's right, yeah. And the drummer, who was this distinctive like lumberjack looking guy, had the beard and kind of the shaved head. Yeah, he was driving the truck. Okay. Yeah, I think this was this was the video that I think I was thinking of that would run late at night. On MTV. I, I remember seeing it. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, because we used to stay up till all hours of the night, especially in the summertime. And See, right here's the video where the girls are up to the truck. That's right. Yeah. So they had their they had their moment on MTV. Mm-hmm. They did. But yeah, this this song I haven't thought about in a long time. It's this was like a lot of bands that don't hit it huge but are relatively successful. The the entity that is April Wine is still going. Sure. Yeah, I mean they they can still there's still a name. I mean they can still go out and perform and book gigs and I don't know how many of the original members are still part think, of it. I think there's one. Is there? I, okay. I think there's one. So uh, with with April Wine, they. I, I remember hearing the story when they were formed. Somebody came up with the name April Wine, and the idea of the name was it wasn't supposed to mean anything. Okay. It didn't. It it just was a. It, it was. It could mean anything to anybody. It's kind of like you know Ron Swanson talking about the art, or or, or, or I'm sorry, in Parks and Rec when. When the one guy was designing the art that Ron Swanson ended up liking, because it just looked like anything, like you'd see in a ho- in a motel, okay. and, and that's kind of what the name meant. And the a lot of the guys that continued on the band didn't necessarily like the name a whole lot because it wasn't like it didn't take a strong stance. But the idea was this is just this entity that can kind of continue, sure. And it it has to the stay much much bigger in their native Canada. It has turned into a franchise for them, and right. they'll always. Be employed, you know. Sure, and they they sell good sized clubs, yeah. theaters and clubs, and they can you know fairs. It continues to go on. While there's many in the U.S. might not remember our list was in Canada. Certainly, are I'm sure they're big April Wine fans. So that is April Wine, my number nine band on my list, or, or number nine artists. They're not all bands. Number eight, Scott played, uh, you know, the song that I probably would have played, but. You know, we, we can get back into uh, this band, uh, talk about them a little bit, uh, but here's a pretty big hit for them. And this is the Bare Naked Ladies. Sure. And that is, it's all been done, as I said, by the Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah, and I much, I, of the album that they released when they hit big in the U.S., this is a song I liked much, preferred over One Week. One Week got played out. Oh, that. yeah. It was it was a good song when it started, but I think it I think it shows the, I, I, one thing I always appreciated about Bare Naked Ladies was the fact that they had two lead singers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they took turns. And one guy would sing lead on the one song, another guy would sing lead on the other song, and but yet it was kind of seamless. Like you never right. sat there and and kind of hoped for one guy to sing over the other. You know, there've been duos that where you could sit, you could make that argument. 
Well, for me, what I liked is that it's not like just one guy sang the lead and the other guy sang the lead. You would get both voices in every song. Right. So they would have their parts, even if they weren't singing lead. And from what I understand, you know, that that is what contributes to a, a band's ability to tour over and over and over Which again. Which save the voice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you think about it, lead singers... Uh, like you and I watched the behind the music on Bon Jovi, you know, and John would, he would scream his throat raw. Mm-hmm. And he would literally have to, you know, when you saw him in Philadelphia, you you came away saying, why is Richie singing so much? Well, then we yes. watched the behind the music and it turns out John was having throat problems. And and when he did talk in that concert, his voice was so raspy. Yeah. It, it was, the guy was a trooper for performing. But they were, you know, you're right, going night after night after night. It's nice to be able to break it up a little bit. Yeah. So when you heard the, you know, Million Dollars song yes. with, with Joe Otto, is that the first time you ever heard Bare Naked Ladies? No, I was I had, I had, was familiar with who they were okay. at that point. Um, because, yeah, One Week had just come out. So it was, like, still kind of fresh. Okay. Um so when I heard when I heard the song, I, I immediately recognized who the singers were. Right, and the, I just thought the song was so funny, it, uh, especially when he's talking about a K car, you know, <laughs> yeah. and and craft cheese with uh, Dijon mustards. Uh, oh, that's fancy mustard. Dijon ca- ketchups. Yeah, fancy Dijon ketchups. Right, and I just thought that you know they just they just had a wit about them that you, you didn't hear on the radio very often. Right. I, I liked the, the Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah. I, I was always a fan. Moving on to my number seven artist. Scott did talk about um, this particular artist, and he did, you know, he touched on what was, you know, may have been my favorite song, but it, it, was, it was tied with the, with the one I'm going to play for you now. And we're going to get into Corey Hart, and it's not going to be Sunglasses at Night. Thank you. <laughs> Just a little more time could open closing doors Just a little uncertainty can bring it down song takes you right back to 1985 that's Corey Hart with Never Surrender and and these are two bands uh, you you played Honeymoon Suite earlier Mm -hmm. 
you know, these are two albums that went up against each other for Juno Awards in the same year. And Corey Hart, like I said, you, you know, you think about the one song, but yeah, here's a guy who had, who had a really respectable career in both markets for the for the decade of the '80s, and I I always thought because it came out relatively soon after Sunglasses at Night, I thought they were for a long time I thought they were part of the same album, and they're not. You know, this was this was a follow up album. So again, that's where you're talking about the number two, the second album, is is where you look at staying power, and this was a huge hit for him. It was. I was actually surprised to see that there was as much <clears throat> time between the release of the two albums. You know, the first album uh, was 82, and maybe that was in Canada. Yeah. But then in 85, we get this song. Right. At least in the U.S. market. And to your point, you're right, because Sunglasses at Night didn't chart in the U.S. until 84. Correct. And so this comes out a year later, and that's probably why we think they're so close. But they were three years apart. But it just so happened that the record company was waiting for that follow-up, and they were ready to throw it into our market probably sooner than they would with the first album. To me, this takes me right back to high school. It, it's such good memories with this song. Well, this is this is uh, eighth grade for me, junior high. Yeah, uh, yeah. This did, this reminds me of Saturday afternoons at the roller skating rink. Okay. So uh, this was. Definitely one of the songs that the DJ liked to play over and over again. Not a sappy love song, just a good song. Although, on my list, I did throw in a sappy love song just for you. Well, thank that, you. That, that I have on here. I'm well, touched. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, like I said, that's Corey Hart. He's number seven on my list. Uh, I think he's one of the, the all-timers to come out of Canada. You know, I wonder if people would laugh at us by... By having Corey Hart that high up on a list, because um, I thought about that too. It's like, you know, is, is that bad for me to have Corey Hart so high up on my list? Because, and I and I tried to because we we think about these one and done albums, sure. But yeah, here's a guy who had a, who had he sustainability. Had, he had three albums in a row. He did, yeah. And that's I don't care whether it if it's Canadian, uh, U.S., Australian, English, it doesn't matter. That's a lot yeah. in, in the pop world it, to get three in a row. It really is, and, and and he's also a guy who overcame. Um, you know, I think he had uh, he suffered from uh, stage fright, and, and he had like a like a mental exhaustion event, and that was why there was that break between the second and the third albums. Okay, because he had to take some time off to, I guess, kind of recover, and then that was when he came out with the with the uh, album in eighty seven. I did not know that. So, so moving on my list, we're going to get number six, and we, we talked about this band. And Scott said he intentionally did not put them on his list. This is Bachman Turner Overdrive with the song Let It Ride. 
and my memory of this song is from the movie, the Mark Wahlberg movie, Invincible, where he plays Vince Papali. Mm-hmm. And that, this song is featured very prominently in that movie, especially in the beginning. There's, uh, it's been used. It was used for multiple scenes, uh, particularly when he's at training camp trying to make the team for the first time. So yes, uh, it fit that that movie extremely well. It's a, this is a good song. I'm not. It is. I I do. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you didn't t- play uh, "Taking Care of Business." Thank you <laughs> for that. You know, but but Homer Simpson. I know a lot of Simpson yes. references references tonight, but that was Homer Simpson's favorite song. It was, and he went to the concert and just kept asking for it over and over again. But we played it ten times already. Yeah, <laughs> I. That's a song, "Taking Care of Business." I don't think I can listen to it anymore. It's been in so many commercials, and it's just been played to death. But this song, I mean, I, I guess if you're listening to classic rock radio, or you're listening to maybe some Spotify channel, or if you have something on Sirius XM, you're going to hear it. But still, I, I kind of like it. Yeah, this song holds up. Yeah. And still, and this is pretty much it. You know, a major act, as we said. You know, R- Randy Bachman came out of the Guess Who, so major artist, incredible for anyone to be able to have that long sustained success to go from one project to the next. Sure. And it's probably even bigger than the Guess Who. So that was Bachman Turner Overdrive, number six on my list. Now, you know, while Bachman Turner Overdrive is high on my list, and my, my next artist is only just one spot ahead, to me, there's a big gap between where I would rank these two. Okay. And you, you gave a pretty good... Um, Discussion on, on the song that you talked about, no Ironic. And I don't think we could go on with anything we pick off a Jagged Little Pill, but I, I keep coming back to this song. And this is Alana Morissette with Head, head of Her Feet. And I know we, we went into a lot of detail in part one of this episode about Alana Alana set, but I think we just got had to keep emphasizing how big this was. Yes, and the impact that it had on the radio market at the time and album sales. This was such a huge album, and I, I think we also have to emphasize how what her age was when she wrote this. The majority of this album was written when she was 19 and recorded when she was 20. So you're talking to a 20-year-old that came up with this with this album, and it was, uh, like I said, and we said in part one, I think to me, to us, it was one of the best albums of the generation. Now, how were you exposed to Alanis Morissette? Was it through MTV or through the radio or through an al- or someone sharing the album with you? It was primarily the first time I heard Alanis Morissette because you ought to, ought to know right uh, that was the video correct that was the first time I saw right. was I, that I saw her and then then it took off on the radio 
But the first time I remember Alanis Morissette was was through the was through MTV. And that's I'd say with all of the singles she released, that's how I initially found out about them, because it wasn't necessarily what I was tuning into away from MTV. Right. So if I was you know I was listening to a lot of my own CDs at this point, where uh, and you know my radio stations probably would have been a little more of the rock variety. Yeah. Where this is more alternative. Now, I don't know if MTV had still emphasized, because remember, songs used to debut on MTV. Like, you wouldn't hear them until you saw the video for the very first time. Right. And that went on for many, many years. They did the world premieres of the song. You didn't hear that song on the radio until you saw it on MTV. But do you remember a buzz about this leading up to the songs were being released? I mean, like... You ought to know. I I don't remember talk about Alanis Morissette until after that song gets released. By the time this song came out, this which, song, yeah, which was probably what number four, oh, number it, five. It, who knows? It was it's long, long into the list. But when you ought to know came out, I, it really caught everybody by surprise, and it was not anticipated by the record company at all. That was my take on it. Yeah. But yeah, just uh, just an incredible album. And something that I think Gen X can feel really proud about because this this song has so much. Even though, like I said, she wrote it when she was 19, recorded when she was 20. You know, this this is a better album for an adult than it was for a teenage kid. And evidently, she had some notebook where she had all the lyrics written down uh, prior to making writing the songs. And somehow she lost the notebook, or she it was in a backpack, and and. It, it, and it, it, it's gone and it's like it's devastating and then somehow it gets found and returned to her Okay, that she could never recreated it and so we came that close to not having this album sure. actually come into existence but that is Alana Morissette with the song Headed Over Feet Canada should be proud of that artist she comes in number five on my list now number four on my list of artists you know Scott uh, actually you played the song I was going to play okay. with this but th- you know that's fine I actually thought you might and so I the, the one I have th- this is this group has so many hits it was hard to pick which one I liked the most so I wasn't upset when you you took my first choice You're going way back. I am. 1981, at least in the U.S., 1980 in Canada. And this is Loverboy. The kid is hot tonight.
Now, if my memory serves me correct, Sean, I think this is the song that they performed on American Bandstand when I oh, referenced really? the conversation okay. with Dick Clark in, in my greenhouse. Uh, and you talk about the the lag time between when it's released initially in Canada and the U.S., and this is one of them. It, this is released early, the album, and this is their self-titled debut, Loverboy, released early in 1980. This song, Kid Is Hot Tonight, doesn't become doesn't get released until June of 1981. Yeah. Which, I, I guess now when you look back on it retrospectively, that I guess that was common. Yeah. That was normal. You know, a lot of a lot of these albums that we think we're hearing in the U.S., they, they've been out there for a year before we even before we even sniffed them on the charts. Now, we talked in part one of the episode about being exposed to some of this music through the older youth group members that, that we were around. This was one of them. Loverboy was a band that yes. they were into. And I remember our sister Lori really being into Loverboy. Yes. And, you know, really being exposed to it from listening to it in the car with her and, 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 you know, hearing it come through her room. But it was also something that local DJs really picked up on. Well, let me ask you a question. The, the, it's a very famous album cover. Yeah. The, the Get Lucky album. The Get Lucky is, yeah. And it's, it's the, you know, the backside wearing red leather pants. Do you right. know the story behind that? I, I, I assume it's Mike Reno. Is it, is it him? No, it is it is actually the 13-year-old daughter <laughs> of the photographer. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's that's kind of creepy. Because remember, Mike Reno used to wear right, the red, leather, the red pants. leather pants. Yeah. But evidently, his rear end was too big <laughs> to put on an album cover and, that was, and, and to shoot it that close. Right. They needed a real small behind. Okay. So it was the 13-year-old daughter. I, I did not know that. And so that's, you know, the red leather pants with the fingers crossed behind the yes. behind the butt. Yeah. So it was somebody else's hands uh, standing. Oh, really? Around. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. So it's not her. It's not her hand. I knew none of this. So okay. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. But that is Loverboy, the number four artist on my list. You know, they're they're one of the all timers. They're that's really one of the bands of my childhood. That that brings back the memories of junior high school. Just come streaming in is you know eight, it's sixth, seventh, eighth grade. That's Loverboy. But even by by the end of your senior year, they're still charting. Right. Yeah. I mean, the loving every minute of it mm-hmm. uh, in your eyes. You know, those were major hits, and and that was all the way back when you know at your last year of high school. And then I think even like eighty eight, eighty nine, they came out with the song "Notorious," mm-hmm. which was either written or produced by John Bon Jovi. So they all throughout the decade of the eighties were very relevant and very popular. So moving on, well, let's move on to the actually to the nineties. We'll get out of the eighties, and I don't know that you're going to get a bigger artist than this artist from Canada. <laughs> Let's go, girls. Come on. I'm going out tonight. I'm feeling all right. Gonna let it all hang out. Wanna make some noise. We to raise my voice. Yeah, I wanna scream and shout.
So who's this artist again? <laughs> uh, just this little little unknown artist by the name of Shania Twain. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, and, and when you're thinking about lead singers, front front uh, individual artists, the '90s really stands out to me for female singers, mm-hmm. and they really seem to kind of dominate the decade I would in, in many ways. Right. You know, from the Whitney Houston's to Shania Twain, to Celine Dion, mm-hmm. to Faith Hill. Sure. You know, there, there were just so many that were, I think they were all putting out their best work in that particular decade because it's really hard. I mean, think about it. There's not a ton of of male artists that aren't a part of a band in the 90s. It's, you you kind of have to think about it. I would agree. You take pause to it. Sure. Yeah. When you think about the 90s with females, they, you got a name, bunch of names that pop up instantly. And Shania certainly was near the top. I think she was a big part of that. She was really was a big part of that. You know, we, we just mentioned Alanis Morissette. You know, there, there, was, there were a lot of female artists that were at the top of their game in the 90s. Yeah, I, I agree. It, you know, and it's kind of interesting listening to the song and contrast it to the song you played, Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under? And you can definitely hear the shift away from kind of a Nashville sound to much more of a pop sound. Yeah, and of course, you know, the music video plays such a part of it too, where she replicates you know, the Robert Palmer um, "Addicted to Love" video, where she's got the hunky guy standing behind her instead. Wait, of is the, that with this song? Is, isn't that song that do, that don't impress me much? No, the, oh, is this this yeah, video? This one, okay, yeah, yeah, because she has on the the men's shirt and the short skirt. And that's that's her. Okay. Yeah, that's her uh, performing in front of the guys. Yeah. All right. See now, at this point, I'm not necessarily watching as much MTV as what I used to. Well, at this point, it had shifted to VH1. Okay. MTV had kind of gotten away from music videos, and and VH1 had taken over. They VH1 was kind of the video channel to watch after like 1992, 1993, I think. All right. That certainly makes sense. All right. So that was Shania Twain. Number three on my list of Canadian artists. Number two, it's not, not going to be a surprise. The, you know, Scott and I went into great details about Brian Adams. He is one of the, the biggest artists, you know, Shania Twain as well, but, you know, Brian Adams is one of the biggest artists throughout the entire Gen X era. Still super popular today. He, he's been amazing. He's just an incredible career. It came down to what song would I pick? So I'm going to go with one of... His big songs off of his first really big album, off the Reckless album. Now, 
I'll tell you the, the, the real reason why I picked this song. Because I had a distinct high school memory okay. with this song. Sophomore year, Cal Ash's sophomore English. Okay. Right? So we had this, this guy who was our, our JV soccer coach, assistant varsity coach, but he also was an English teacher. And the dirtiest soccer player you ever played against. <laughs> he was dirty and like he was nasty. He would kick you and he was the, the cheap shot artist. But he was our teacher, and then yes. we had it, we, we we called him Cal. At the end of the day, he was a nice guy. Yeah, and we, we you know he was somebody that when we were on the soccer field, we called him by his first name. We had to call him Mr. Ash in the classroom. Yes, that's right. So uh, Mr. Ash uh, tried to relate to his students, and so in his English class one day, he decided to have us students. Well, he told us the night before, or, or that we were supposed to bring in lyrics to a song. Okay, and we would discuss them in class. Okay. And um, a girl in, in our class, Joy Hoover, you know, Lamar Hoover's older sister, brought in the lyrics to this song. Okay. And I'll never forget it that she sat there and read the lyrics. Of the, these lyrics spoke to her. It meant a lot. Okay. Now, the lyrics that I brought in, I brought in the lyrics uh, to the Judas Priest song, Living After Midnight. <laughs> <laughs> That's where, where we were at different places. Now, yeah. today, I probably would have more likely brought in the lyrics to this song. Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, so anyway, so that's, that's the high school memory. Whenever I have heard that song since to today, I immediately go back to Kalash's classroom and whenever that song plays. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I remember the music video because, again, the, was this, this was the first song off of the of Reckless. Reckless album. Yes. Yeah, because I remember Summer of 69 came out after. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but I remember seeing that because a lot of his videos that he shot, he would they were kind of low budget. I think this one had a little bit more artistic value to it. Uh, I remember him uh, rolling like leaves blowing all over the place, and he's and, in the snow at one yes, point. And yeah. it, it it starts out in the video where there's like this uh, Fender Stratocaster like stuck in the snow. And he's there, and he's shivering, and he's, he's like next to it, and the wind's blowing, and the, right. the fake snow's blowing around him. But yeah, very, very vivid, memorable video. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was my memory of, uh, of that song. But yeah, good, good song choice. Again, a song that you probably don't hear as much as some of the other Brian Adams songs that kind of hits that rotation. Right. And, and Joy Hoover, or I, if you're out there, just know that that day when you brought those lyrics in, that have stayed with me forever. So that's Brian Adams, my number two Canadian artist. And Kalesh kicked me in the head one time in an indoor soccer tournament. <laughs> okay. He did apologize for it, but he did it on purpose. Uh, of course he did. Of course he did. So we're going to go, uh, before we get to number one, we're going to go to my honorable mentions, as usually the, the, the way we go about doing things here. And I was, I'm going to play a song that I was so worried that my brother was going to play, because I'm going to get into some one-hit wonders here. I, I'm going to... Um, I, I'm going to take a guess for one. Yeah. Oh, so when you play it, I know I'm not going to be shocked. I'll, right. I'll, I'll, when you play it, I'm going to point it out. Okay. So. Let's, we'll see. Is it this one? But I forgot about Jane Child. I love Jane Child. Uh, and this is, I don't want to fall in love. I, I, I thought this was an awesome song from the first time I heard it. Yeah. It's a great song. I've never grown tired of this song. This came out in 1990. Yes. I've never gotten sick of this song. And she had a really unique look. She did. And for you Gen Xers who remember, 
she was the first person that I think we ever saw sport the nose ring that was attached to the earring. Yes. And she also had, I don't think she ever had a haircut. It was like spiked up top and really long in the back. Yeah. It was kind of like almost like a cornrow thing going on. It went down to her feet. She had a lot of a, a lot of things happening. But she was also known as this keyboardist that was highly in demand. She was a great session keyboardist that played on a lot of other songs. And this was her step out in, as a solo artist. And you're right, this is this is a really good song. So when you said that you went out and got the the single, the um, who was it? The, the the Atlanta Miles single with Amy. I was afraid you were going to pick this song. Okay. Because it's right about that same time. It was, yeah. This came out a little bit before. This would have been like winter 1990. Because I remember I was working at the mall when the song was really mm-hmm. popular. And Jane Charles, at least in the U.S., never had another hit. No. No, but she was a working musician. She never had to worry about a paycheck because she was, like I said... If you watch the video, go back and watch the video and, and watch how she plays the keyboard. You can see how really, you know, great she is. Mm-hmm. Good so that, song. Good song. Yeah, that's Don't Want to Fall in Love by Jane Child, at least in the U.S., a one-hit wonder, but still one of the really good one-hit wonders. That is going to, uh, you know, take me up to my next one. And this is one I think Scott may think that I'm... I'm if I'm going to predict that he thinks I'm going to play, it's going to be this one. But I want to get past the intro because there's a long intro, so just give me a second. Okay, here we go. Aldo Nova. That's right. Now, this was one of the music videos that MTV really did get behind. Yes, they did. And there was quite a bit of production value in this in this video. It had that, because you said about the, the whole intro. The, the intro is a minute and four, uh, a minute and four seconds. And, I, and I'm pretty sure they played the whole intro in the video. They did, because it's kind of like the helicopters, and he walks up with, like, the guitar with the laser beams, because it was very 19, early 1980s. That's right. And he, like... Like acts like he's he's opening something, where he's shooting the guitar at the ship or whatever, yeah. and it breaks open. Yes. So, you know, hey, credit credit the band, credit Aldo Nova for for trying to come up with something unique, and they did. It was a unique video for its time, and this was really popular on MTV. It was. There wasn't a day when this thing was out that you did not see this video. It it. I was often surprised that Aldo did not go into bigger and better things. Now, I know he had some type of dispute with the record company. Right. He went away for a while. He comes back with another album after this. And 
there's a song that, you know, I, I could have played, and it's called Monkey on Your Back, which was kind of a minor hit. It was definitely an MTV hit. Kind it wasn't really a that. radio hit. Yeah. Yeah, I, but I think at that point, MTV, MTV was starting to get a, a great more number of videos sent to them mm-hmm. that they had more to choose from. And I think the, the Aldo Novas, while they served a purpose in the earlier days of MTV, it just didn't seem like they stuck with a guy like Aldo Nova. Uh, throughout that run of that album and I think Monkey on Your Back while it got played early on it was kind of quick to get taken away it it was and then he has the dispute and he kind of goes away then he eventually comes back in like 1989-ish with John Bon Jovi John Bon Jovi forms his record company and he puts Aldo Nova on there there's kind of a, a big deal put into Aldo's comeback it's the album I don't know if you even remember it and the single was called Blood on the Bricks and they kind of like talked it up. They, they played the video. They had another song off the album called Medicine Man. It kind of went nowhere. And then Aldo kind of, he disappears. Now he goes off and he becomes a songwriter. He writes for John Bon Jovi. I, I think he was on the Blaze of Glory album. He, yeah. he wrote, contributed towards that. And he also did some songs for Celine Dion. So he's been working behind the scenes, but never he, he never reached the heights again that he did in like 1982. Right. So that was Aldo Nova uh, with Fantasy, uh, a song that at least when I was in junior high school got a lot of airplay. Scott questioned the, the next band that I'm going to play, what I would think about it. Now, he did play the song that I was going to play, but they did have two hits. And this is Glass Tiger with their other hit, which was actually their bigger hit, which is Don't Forget Me When I'm Going. Yes. Uh, again, the album is The Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. And why these guys didn't have more success is beyond me because they were one of my favorite bands to listen to on the radio when these songs were, were popular. It, it, it was a great introduction for us. I mean, and then we hear Brian Adams singing backup on this song. It, it was like a recipe for success. I think the Brian Adams connection was through Jim Valens because he yeah. produced the album. He he did, yeah. But what a again this I think this Juan Juno. The Juno Award for Album of the Year in Canada, and Glass Tiger was super successful. Sure, in in the U.S. and uh, while we didn't get more from them, we can at least appreciate what they came out with. And these these were two really really good songs. 
And this certainly sounds like the type of music you would have heard in a teen movie in 1986. Sure. Yeah. But I, I still like this song to the de- to this day yeah and i think one thing that i found out through coming up with with my list is that a lot of these songs are pretty durable mm-hmm. you know they 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 are not now granted we kind of went out of our way to avoid some of the some of the you know ones that get rehashed and replayed over and over again but for the most part these these songs are are really really good even now right so i'm gonna play a, a, another song here by by a band, you know, the I, I could have, I had to have two in the queue just in case you went with, with one or the other. It's a band, and then the artist splits off and has a little bit of solo success. And it's a song that I've played before, but it's still worth playing again. So is, is this the scene where he's getting ready to wrestle shoot? Yep. Is that where he's, he's in the other room? He's, he's in the warm-up room. Yeah, okay. And of course, you know, we're referencing the movie Vision Quest. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can almost visualize Loudon like going through his moves right yeah. now. And this is is Red Rider Rider with Lunatic Fringe. It was out as a video on MTV before Vision Quest put it in the movie. Yeah, hadn't this come out a couple of years before the movie? It did. It did. And I remember being a little surprised that they would use what I thought was an old song. Right. Because we've talked about it many times during the Gen X era. Things were were hot for like six, seven, eight months, and then they went away. And this, to me, was this was in the garbage bin. And this was an extremely influential soundtrack that you referenced many mm-hmm. times. They, this, there, there was a lot of backing behind the soundtrack in the movie itself. So it kind of, kind of got itself a second life through, uh, through this, through this movie. And the lead singer is Tom Cochran. Now, a couple years later, he's going to leave Red Rider and he's going to go solo and he's going to come out with the song "Life Is a Highway." Yes, I debated playing that. But this doesn't get played a lot anymore. This song's much better. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Life is a Highway's been covered yeah. numerous times. Uh, I'm not a huge Rascal Flatts fan, and I know they have a version of it super, super popular. Don't, you know, don't want to offend Rascal Flatts fans out there. I prefer the Tom Cocker version, but I, I, I like this song yeah. a lot more. Yeah, you're right. Good song choice. Completely forgot about that one. So that's Red Rider, Lunatic French. Now, the next song, I'm a little surprised that you did not play this, Scott. I 100% thought it was coming out for you. Yeah, because I forgot they were Canadian. Because I actually have this 45 at home. I 100% thought you were going to play this one. That's why I have Safety Dance next up to go, just because I I, I didn't think I was going to get to this. I kind of wish you would have played Safety Dance because that was one of the more iconic videos of the early 80s. But I can easily switch over and play it. No, we can deal with this. this right, we'll, we'll, we'll do this, and then we'll do a couple minutes of Safety Dance. Because I don't know when we're ever going to talk about Safety Dance again. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Men Without Hats, Pop Goes the World. Yeah. Not their biggest hit. Safety Dance is a bigger hit. No, but this, this had its moment. And it was a bit of a comeback because it was, it, was. it was a few years later. This came out in 1987. 
And Men safety. Without Hats was like 82. Safety Dance was 82, 83. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, right. Safety Dance is 82. 83. And two very different sounding songs. Like this certainly fits that time frame of 1987, 1988. Uh, whereas, you know, the Safety Dance kind of, I don't know maybe if the video had anything to do with it, but it just, it has that kind of that throwback feel to it, almost like you're playing at a Renaissance Fair sort of right. thing. Alright, so that's Pop Goes the World, Men Without Hats, and just to uh, close the door, Men Without Hats, we're going to safety dance. Because you're right, it does kind of have that, a Renaissance sound to it. It does. Mixed with a synth. In my opinion, this is one of the great videos of the early days of MTV. Like one of the really great, memorable videos of like 1982, 1983. Because as soon as the song comes on, I'm immediately transported to the music video. Correct. And it's it's the like I said, it's the Renaissance. Everybody's dressed up in costumes. It looks like sure looks like they had fun making it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but it's it's one of those iconic music videos, I think, from the early days of MTV that kind of helped make the network. I actually did hear this song before I saw the video. Did really? you? Yeah, and, and I, I I mentioned on the podcast before that, you know, growing up I had, I had a buddy, George Ackman, and as Scott knows, the guy could find new music, unlike anyone I, we ever knew, and he brought this cassette to me and I remember him playing it and singing it and kind of like acting out like a weird dance yeah. to it <laughs> the thing I remember about Georgie Ekman was when he uh, played the Prince tape and it wasn't which, which one it wasn't 1999 it was one that came out before that it was one that had um, um, Deli- uh, controversy wh- okay controversy yeah and then I saw the music video for the first time, <laughs> and I was like, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> right? Yeah, I do remember Georgie singing but, that. But he, yeah, he, kind of, he was playing that tape before he, uh, yeah. I mean, he was, he was connected. He was I, a savant. I, you know, pre-internet, uh, he was able to find these things, and yeah. Safety Dance was was one that he found. So as Men Without Hats, we got. Who would have thought that we would have gone back to back, Men Without Hats? Yeah, we'll play the next one um, just just for memories. I'm not saying it's one of my favorite songs, but. Gen Xers, you're going to remember this song. It's by the uh, the band Crash Test Dummies, and it's mmm, 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 mmm. Once there was this kid who got into an accident and caught and come to school, but when he finally came back, his hair. I turned from black into bright white He said that it was from when the cousin smashed so hard Now Sean, even I think this song came out on the US charts around 1991, 1992 uh, The one thing I will appreciate 
about the pre-grunge into grunge music is they kind of took away and isn't it funny how when people started to get tired of disco you kind of had the Bee Gees there at the very end where they're screaming in falsetto that's what happened to heavy metal correct you know where it got to be where everybody's screaming at the top of the lungs in this high register right that's one thing I will give it to uh, to grunge is that they brought the levels down to a normal level again so I had this Dennis 93 Okay. And so grunge, uh, supposedly Teen Spirit, breaks in like summer of 92. Okay. This was after Nirvana. But once again, I don't know when it was recorded in Canada. Okay. I just know that uh, uh, on the U.S. charts, we got this in like 93. Okay. Uh, To me, that was probably the most refreshing part about, about grunge music is that guys were singing in deeper voices again. Right. And when you wanted to sing along with the song, you didn't have to sit there and go, ah! <laughs> you know, like, uh, there's a band called Steelheart. Oh, yeah. And at the end of the song, he's Yeah, screaming. I'll never let you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the guy need, probably needed some kind of surgery or at least an ice pack. I, I may have tried it in private, but there's no way I'm <laughs> singing that song in front of anyone. Right. But this song I would attempt. You can hum along to it. I mean, just like you and I, in the previous episode, we sang along to the Bare Naked Ladies. I mean... That's lower. We can yes, sing that. Exactly. Yeah. Although this guy's got a really yeah, he, he it, goes deeper. Yeah, too. he's super, super deep voice. But this was a song that you know I don't know that there's too many of us that went through the Gen X era that's not, that aren't going to remember that. Sure. So those crash test dummies with mm 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 mm. My next artist, Canadian artist. He's somebody that uh, I'm going to play what was probably his biggest hit. Although Scott and I, I think, remember him from something else. Perhaps one of the all-time coolest movies. But this was the song that he actually charted with, and this is the Jeff Healy Band with Angel Eyes. Yep. And of course, we're, we're referencing the movie Roadhouse, which he appears in. Yes. Jeff Healy had one of the most memorable roles in the movie Roadhouse as Cody, the gossipy blind guitar player. That's right. He knew everything. He, if you wanted the juice, if you wanted some, you know what was going on, if you wanted the word on the street, you went to Cody. Hey, come on, you play pretty good for a blind white boy. <laughs> and what did he say? I thought you'd be taller. Yeah, I thought you'd be bigger. Yeah, that was that was when they saw each other. Yeah, in the movie. well, saw kind of because oh, yeah. you know Jeff couldn't see. Was, that was the gag when when. Uh, you know, Patrick Swayze snuck up on him. You know, the, the funny thing is, I knew this song before the movie. 
I did. As, now, this was on MTV. Did you, where did you know it from? Yeah, this this got heavy to it play did. on the radio. It, it, okay. This was really popular on the radio. And I liked this song a lot. It came out in the summer of 1989. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, this, this was uh, just kind of a kind of a slower bluesy kind of jam and Jeff Healy despite not being able to see uh, positions the guitar on his lap mm-hmm. and it doesn't play a slide guitar but but he plays a standard guitar but he's really talented really good guitarist and uh, as you can hear he just got a great soulful bluesy voice and it's a shame that this was the only hit that he had but at least he had one and if, if I remember correctly, he was kind of recording this album right about the time he got brought into the Roadhouse Project. So it was all around 89-ish. Yes. So he was, for, for a moment, was really popular. Yeah. And, you know, you know had, had a decent career since he's passed away. But, you know, he, had, he went down the, the traditional blues career. So I think that was, you know, instead of trying to chase pop fame, he, he went the traditional blues route, and I think he had a nice decent career. Well, as, as you could tell in the movie Roadhouse, because all they did in the in the movie was covers. So he sang other people's material, but Correct. he did a really excellent job yeah. with it, too. Yep. So that's the Jeff Healy band. Next uh, artist that I'm going to play, we've we've played before, and I, I when Scott played this oh, many episodes ago, I had not heard this thing in over 30 years. And I... Remembered and brought it back. I know it's one of Scott's favorites. Remember the video. He's singing into a phone. Man, Sean, how delicious is 1989? 1989, Concan. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Remember, I told you it was it was a uh, based on a another song, right? It's supposed to be like a country song. Yeah, and you played this on. It was the countdown for one of the months in 1989. 89, yeah. And, and and I remember at the time just being stumped by it, but thinking, yeah, I kind of like that. Catchy. It's yeah, really catchy. It is. Yeah. Con can. I can totally see you jumping up and down at the club to this song. You know what I remember about this song was we started doing the New Year's Eve parties mm, with some at, of at, our friends. At Tim Shiner's house? This would have been at J. Peter Shiner's house. Oh, okay. House. Yeah. Yeah. Because that uh, that's my first memory of dancing to this song. So shout out to uh, J.P. All right. So I, that was the first song that I played just for you. I Thank put that on the list for you. And then the next song... I thought of this. This this artist is known for the sappy ballad, and so I picked the 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 sappiest of the ballads that I actually don't mind. But this is one that I got just for Sky. Oh wow! Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 
That song goes back to 1987, and that's Dan Hill with a little help from Vonda Shepard, and the song is Can't We Try. And I just remember the, the group of friends that we had, the girls loved this song. I, I, yeah. I don't, you know, it was a popular song. It got played on the radio a lot. I, I, I don't hate it. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not terrible, but it, it it's, fo- it's not sometimes when we touch the honesties too much. Right, which yeah. was his other big hit yeah. that he had. Yeah. I mean, he had numerous hits. I mean, he, he, he had he quite a few, yeah. but they all were kind of like this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was probably the most tolerable of all the <laughs> of all the Dan Hill songs that I remember coming across the pike. But yeah, so I mean, still, it was a major hit. It was it, a it major was, hit. It was a major hit, and you know, I, I don't want to put it down because I'm sure there's some of our listeners that had many a memorable slow dance to this, and and you know, <laughs> back of the car. I, I don't know, but that was Dan Hill. Can't we try? That is going to end my honorable mentions. Now I'm going to get finally get back to the artist that I consider to be the number one art, artist from north of the border in Canada. We already spoke at lengths about the band Rush, mm-hmm. about Getty Lee, um, the the incomparable Neil Peart on drums, and we failed to mention the the guitar virtuoso that's Alex, Alex Lifeson. Truly a power trio, if there ever was a power trio. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. They were. They were without a doubt they for a three man three piece band. They're kind of the forefront of at least when I think of a three piece band. There's Rush based on their their you know the duration, the amount of years that they performed. Uh, their only other three piece band might be the Police that I think of. I mean, it's not it's a it's a small list. Insanely good musicians. Yeah. I mean, the the best of the best. The the fact that you have, you know, Getty Lee, who in addition to playing the bass at, at a high level is also playing keyboards. Mm-hmm. And he's also singing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I and I still come back oftentimes if I'm going to put a list of all-time drummers together, you know, Neil Peart's going on that list. You know, the the late Neil Peart was always regarded as among the greats. Now, one of the cool things about Rush is watching them perform a concert, but it's so different than, say, watching a, another band that is charismatic. Like, you're, you're fixated on Rush performing because you're literally watching them play all these complicated mm-hmm. instruments, mm-hmm. whereas maybe another band, because they have a charismatic front person. Right. But really, Rush is like one of the first bands that I remember watching on TV where I'm like, saying like how do they do that like you're literally paying attention to neil perp because you know he's got the he's got the drums the size of a one-story house and he's he's enclosed in the in this drum set and and getty lee's standing around like three different synthesizers in addition to his bass and he's singing and he's singing and he's playing keyboards and he's playing it's like 
And Alex Lifeson is playing incredibly complex pieces on the guitar. Well, yeah, and you're right. He he really doesn't get enough credit. He's kind of like Andy Summers in many ways mm-hmm. because they uh, Stuart Copeland always said about Andy with with Sting that Sting wasn't able to become the Sting the performer until he got Andy's ability to play what he wanted played. Right. And Alex is is in many ways the the kind of the I guess the backbone of of Rush because he can do that. He can play so many different styles. He can allow uh, you know Neil Peart to, to do all those different things and and Getty Lee to to do you know. So you need somebody there that can keep things moving along, and and that's what Alex was doing for Rush. The only question that I had coming into this because without a doubt when I came up my list, I always wrote the name Rush down first. It was what song am I going to pick? Do I do what Scott did, where he goes to the early days of the pop career with Permanent Waves? Or do I go to the the top of the mountain and do Moving Pictures, where arguably their signature song is Tom Sawyer? Mm -hmm. I could have done that, but I decided to stay true to what I liked the best, and that was the following album, and that was Signals with the song Subdivisions. As we let the song play in the background, you know, you can pick up on the lyrics every so often. These are deep lyrics, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because Neil is the lyricist, which is rare that your drummer writes your lyrics. Correct. And I think that was yet another unique thing about about this group is that they let Neil pretty much handle all the lyric, all, all the, the lyrics. lyrics. Yeah, but what a like you said, they are the best of the best. You know, best of their. You could put them at any one of their instruments and say these guys are among the best and that they can place these complex pieces live and play it so well it just adds to their you know the the props that you got to give a group like this where they don't need assistance how many bands out there you know there's there's prog rock bands out there like i'm going to use genesis as an example where in order to recreate that studio sound they've got to bring out two three additional musicians yet Rush has always remained that true. Always three. Uh, to my knowledge, they never play with tracks. They, it, you know, it was just them up there, and they, 
you, you know, they would have these these complex pieces, and you know, you'd hear the guys interviewed and like like Neil Peart saying that like when you play a song like Tom Sawyer, because it's so complicated. Even though he played it, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of times, he says every night he was always very satisfied if he could make it through without any errors. Yeah, and Getty Lee, who I, I know there's not a version on Spotify, but you look for it. That like, takeoff, yeah, for the the Bob and Doug McKenzie. Yeah, I, I yeah. tried to find it as well. well. You know, he went to he went to school. He grew up with uh, Rick Moranis. They actually were in in classroom together. Okay. as little kids, so they were friends going way back. Well, because because Getty and Alex are lifelong friends. They go back to grade school yeah. as well. Yeah, so a lot of those guys all went to the same school in the Toronto area, and because um, uh, you know Dave Thomas also part of Bob and Doug McKenzie. You know, he's, he's a little bit older, but he's from that same that same area. But yeah, Rick and Getty, they they went they were in literally in class together. Okay, they were class classmates as uh, as youngsters. Well, it's interesting that Alex and Getty go so far back, and they've never had a falling out, at least not a public falling out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure they've had some disagreements, but the fact you go back to your childhood and you're still together. We talked about that. When you discussed the the band live, you know, local band, York, Lancaster band live, how they formed when they were in high school, and then they kind of had difficulties working together as they got as they went on. Well, here you have these two guys that have known each other forever, and they still were able to get along and make music. And then you bring in Neil, who was not the original drummer, and you know the story. Like Neil was just he was working at the parts department at a tractor uh, dealership. Well, he was always. He has that background. He's like, he was always a big motorcycle rider. Yeah. And he he has that side to him. But yet, I guess, didn't he have a situation where he had family that died? So his wife, is, uh, I believe, I know his wife passed away. and they, I'm not sure if the child passed away as well. But he had a wife pass away, and they had to take a, a break where he just rode around all of North America. I think even in South America, he rode all over on his motorcycle. And that's how he healed himself. And, of course, Neil has passed away um, not too long ago, and it's unfortunate just because, you know, Rush is done now because they're not going to go on without him because they were so tight-knit together. Yeah, and and for a band to remain intact, the original three, is is really a testimony because those guys have been around. You know, they were around for 50 years together. 50 years is a really long time. And and for them to to, uh, perform music like that and... You know, hats off to those guys for for having such a great, um, you know, great run as a band. So, uh, our listeners out there, you know, you can agree or disagree with my list. Maybe you think uh, someone should have been higher. Maybe you think that, uh, you know, Men Without Hat should have been the number one artist on my (laughs) list. But I don't care. I'm sticking to it with Rush because for at least a few, a three-year period of my life, you know, the sixth, seventh, eighth grade, Rush was a big part of that. Sure. And I, before... Carl Weathers passed away. What I was going to open the show with was the song "Light of Day" with uh, Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox because mm-hmm. from the movie "Light oh, of Day," he, Michael J. Fox, Mike, okay, sure. Mike Fox played guitar on that song, and I thought, you know, give a little, you know, tip of the cap to uh, to him for for growing up in Canada. So, right. Well, that's that's my list that that closes out part two of our episode. Yes. Uh, so we'll put a bow on that, and I'll turn it over to you, Scott, and you can introduce the topic that we're going to talk about next. So what we're going to do, and I was thinking about this before 
you know, the passing, because we it started in part one that about three hours before we, we started uh, recording this episode, that the great Carl Weathers from the Rocky movies played Apollo Creed, uh, you know, great actor in the Gen X era, uh, just passed away. And so what I wanted to do, what I was thinking about doing, and and Sean and I have spoken about this through previous episodes, where you know part of what we're trying to do is rekindle memories of what Gen X meant to you and I. You know, you and I, the listener, you and I, my brother and myself. So what I what I want to do is kind of come up with something that we may bring back from time to time, and. The title of it is going to be, Didn't You Used to Be... dot, 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 question mark. Okay. So what I want you to do is I want you to come up with 10 names. 10 people that, for and it could be anything. It could be sports. It could be music. It could be movies. It could be television. But there's so many people out there that for just a brief moment were... The biggest of the big, you know, they were they were a list, and then for whatever reasons, the you know the the time has kind of covered the dirt up on their careers, and not to say that Carl Weathers was one of those people because Apollo Creed has stood the test of time with with Rocky, but you know there are going to be some characters out there that were that were absolutely huge for a moment, okay. uh, you know, and I think probably what got me thinking about it in the beginning was when the other episode, when you're doing your countdown from 1979, and you played the song Making It by David Naughton. Now, David Naughton is a forgotten name uh, outside of you know, Gen X. And to consider what a big deal he was at, you know, t- albeit a brief time, could be there are going to be some names out there that are going to uh, survive a little bit longer. But I think there are some, some names out there that we, over time, kind of forget about and and that happens a lot in sports you know you think about some of the players and oh this guy's the goat that coach is the goat this guy's the goat you know it's like everybody is the goat today but i'm sure there are many of us that would dispute that based on players that we watched sure back in the day so uh, it's going to be called do you remember dot 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 question mark so we're going to come each come up with 10 names of people that we thought were significant in the Gen X era. And maybe history hasn't really been too kind to them in terms of, of where they stand now compared to where they were when uh, when they were A-list. All so. right. I will definitely give some thought to that. And um, I'm going to take us out now with one last treat, one last Canadian artist that closes out the Gen X era. Closes. So this is a song from 1999, and it was one of my favorite songs of 1999. Him, but he looks pretty uh, down. <laughs> he looks pretty uh, down. Yeah, well, maybe we should cheer him up then. What do you uh, suppose we should do? Well, does he like butter tarts? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. Does he like butter tarts? This is the band Len with Steal My Sunshine. Good video, too. Yeah. This is one of those fun... <laughs> Fun summertime songs that that you remember. VH1 played this an awful lot, and I 
I like throughout this song here the, the goofy banner. Like, does he like butter tarts? Uh, you know that continues. Now this is this is a brother and sister. Brother band. and sister, right? Yeah. yeah. And as we uh, we sign off, we uh, we can all visualize them going around their little scooters. Yep. There at, at the summertime at the beach. Yeah. Good song to end things on. Hope you enjoyed our episode on the Canadian artist slash songs of the Gen X era. Next week we're gonna we'll bring back some names that maybe you hadn't thought about in a long time. So as do you remember dot 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 question mark next week and. Sean, you want to tell people where they can find your playlist for this week's episode on Spotify? All right, so I created a playlist, and it is called Gen X Playback Loves Canada. And we do love Canada. Thank you very much. Our, our neighbors from the great, great white north that supplied us three decades of outstanding music. So, again, thank you very much for listening to the Gen X Playback show. I haven't checked the ratings recently to see how we've been doing on Feedspot, but... Oh, we're, we're, we're about at number six. We're, we've kind of st- stayed steady, which, as I say all the time, is amazing because we were the only people on that list without any social media. So please tell a friend. Make sure we we do not we do not charge anything for listeners. I know that's that's a thing out there, but we want to keep this free. We want to grow our little family and and make this a worldwide thing and do it week after week so we enjoy putting this on for you this is the little gift that we send out to you our listeners (laughs) each and every week that's right so thank you very much for listening to the gen x playback show we are the brothers high i'm scott and i am sean and we'll talk to you next week see ya